Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's episode features a conversation with Katrine Bosley. She's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Editas Medicine. It's one of the young companies seeking to use CRISPR-based gene editing technologies to develop new medicines. Editas is still a very young company. It was founded in 2013 with a license to use the technology from the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Within two years, the CRISPR-Cas9 technology has spread like wildfire because of its cheap, fast, easy, and rather precise way to edit out genes across the genome, including single genes implicated in serious diseases. In 2015, the company raised a big venture round with big names like Bill Gates, Google Ventures, now GV, Fidelity, T. Roll Price, and more. And six months later, without any drug candidate yet in clinical trials, it went public. Almost every day, CRISPR is in the news, either for scientific or ethical reasons, or both. Before this episode was recorded, scientists reported successfully using CRISPR to edit a serious gene mutation out of human embryos. In this conversation, Bosley and I talked about some of the day-to-day management issues around working in such a high-profile field and some of the additional responsibilities that come with that territory. In some respects, Editas is a biotech company like any other. It must harness its science and rally its people around solving a clear medical problem. It can't do everything all at once. It must prioritize. But at the same time, it can't put on blinders and be oblivious to the wider world uses and debates around CRISPR. What happens outside Editas's walls and is beyond its control can have a big effect on its destiny. Bosley, a 25-year veteran of biotech, thinks widely and deeply about not just her company, but the societal issues as well. Before taking the Editas job, she spoke with George Church, the Harvard University genomics dynamo, extensively about the ethical implications of CRISPR. I think you'll enjoy hearing her perspective on how an entrepreneur can size up a situation like this and stay focused on the ultimate prize, a drug that matters. Now, before we get started, a couple quick plugs. If you like this show, I think you'll love my subscription newsletter, Timmerman Report. You can go to TimmermanReport.com to subscribe. And if you like the show, please spread the word on your social networks. You can subscribe for free to the regular download on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have some positive comments, please leave them there so that it will help others discover the show. And there will be plenty more to discover. The next episode will feature a conversation with George Yankopoulos, the president and CEO of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. You won't want to miss that one. Now, join me for the long run. Welcome, Katrine Bosley. Uh, you're the CEO of Editas Medicine. Great to have you here on the long run. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. So, Editas, in my mind, really kind of epitomizes one of these biotech companies that's uh, that's playing the long game. You know, you're founded in 2014 or late 2013, maybe, on, on this idea of uh, building on the recent developments of uh, really quick, cheap, easy genome editing tool uh, by the name of CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, and and there was uh, it's kind of a classic startup story in some ways. A big technology idea. You got some big name Boston VCs around the table. Intellectual property license from the Broad Institute with uh, 
uh, a couple of uh, prominent scientists involved. Um, so, uh, but then the question becomes how to build a company, how to make medicines uh, off of this, uh, this platform technology. And that's where someone like like you comes into the picture. Uh, how, how did you arrive at this? Well, as, as you might imagine, the world of biotechnology becomes a pretty small world if you've been hanging around in it for 25 or more years like I have. I've, I've been involved with uh, other young companies and new technologies in the past. And I had the opportunity to be looking for a new opportunity. And what you get to do is you get to talk to everybody about what's going on and what's exciting. And as well, what do people need help with? A lot of the ways that you, you become familiar with new opportunities is you just spend some time with them. You say, what, you know, what challenges are you working on? And, and you work on problems together. Um, with this particular area, I actually found out about it from multiple different angles. One aspect was I spent a few months as an entrepreneur in residence at the Broad Institute, which one of the founding scientists of Editas comes from the Broad. Feng Zhang is, is a scientist and a professor there. And I met him while I was an entrepreneur in residence. And we talked about this. We talked about all kinds of other things, too. He's a very creative and prolific scientist. But, you know, I, I heard a little bit about it there. But I also heard about it from, you know, reading the scientific literature. I also heard about it from the venture capitalists who were involved in putting the company together in its earliest days. There were folks that I knew from prior companies. And I remember one particular meeting with Kevin Bitterman, who, who was one of the investors in, in Editas. And he was just sketching on the whiteboard what this was and in terms of the basic technology and the ideas of building a company around this were really to say, can you take this very powerful basic science and translate it into medicines? And in particular, the really powerful idea behind it was, can you make medicines that repair broken genes? If you think about it, your DNA, the core of all of, of who you are as a person in some respects, we know that mistakes in DNA can lead to very serious genetic diseases, diseases like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease. There are forms of blindness that are driven by genetic mistakes. And we've known this basic concept ever since we've understood how DNA works, but being able to repair at the level of DNA, repair those broken genes has something that's been really more science fiction than, than a real concept until pretty recently. There, there are a couple of younger gene editing technologies, but the emergence of CRISPR as a gene editing technology, which is really just the past, you know, three, four, five years, has really transformed the landscape and, and opened up this set of possibilities of treating genetic diseases at the root cause, at the level of DNA. Yeah, I mean, the I think the other technologies that you reference are probably the zinc finger technology and, and talons, which have been around for a yes. while and, and have been useful tools um, for yes. scientists. But um, I, I think they have been a little uh, cumbersome or expensive or, or just difficult to translate into a therapeutic. Or it's hard, been hard for people to imagine um, turning turning those into uh Therapeutics and CRISPR, by with its speed and specificity and cheapness, all of that combined, it, it sort of took off like wildfire in academia and and you know got 
people's imaginations going uh, in, in, in a new way in, in terms of uh, how, yeah, how, how you might make medicines. I think that's right. I think that point of really driving people's imagination is an important one because because it's easy to use, at least at a research level, it's still hard to make medicines, but using it at a research level, it is robust. You can pick it up and use it without being a gene editing expert. And so people who are scientists who are expert in many different kinds of biologies and diseases and targets could pick up this tool and apply it to that area of their biological expertise and ask and answer questions and probe biology. And and that has, I think, been why you see it spread so broadly within research sciences, that it's a robust tool. Many people have said to me, my first experiment worked with CRISPR. And that's unusual. Science is often a lot more finicky than that. And so the, the, the way that this has driven imagination and, and helped people reimagine what kinds of targets to work on and to discover new targets. It's, it's, it's also a great tool to discover targets that you might uh, use to make therapeutics. So it's, it's, it's really changed the face of biological research dramatically. So you got on board in... 2014. And, and we should say, we should back up a bit that before this, um, you had been the CEO of a company called Avala Therapeutics, uh, which had been acquired by Celgene. Uh, and, and it developed a covalent binder for the Bruton's tyrosine kinase, BTK, uh, for, for the treatment of cancer. And so that, that, uh, that gave you some of that flexibility, that time off to think about what your next move might be and to settle on this one. Yes, and I think too, it, it, it's a great example as well of a company that, that had a broadly applicable platform because, you know, we, the idea of making the kind of molecule we were making, which is it's called a covalent small molecule inhibitor, but that kind of molecule, there are lots of different disease targets you could approach with that chemistry. Interestingly, it was an idea that most people who work in medicinal chemistry thought was a terrible, terrible idea. And it was our scientific founder there, Jaswinder Singh, really had a vision and an inspiration that if you did it right, it could actually solve problems you couldn't solve with other chemical approaches. So, you know, a very uh, orthogonal thinker in many respects, and you had to kind of go up against a very deep-seated dogma about why it was a bad idea and address it with data, you know, with science as to why actually it was a good idea it could solve unsolved problems. So fascinating as well because completely the opposite end of the spectrum from CRISPR science where everybody's excited and diving into the pool. My last company was one where everybody knew for sure it was a terrible idea and we had to overcome that that dogma and that resistance. Yeah, as the CEO of this company, uh, Avila, um, you, you know, you're facing a wholly different challenge, which is to, um, you know, make people believe in it, in the investor community and, and partners, um, as well as the internal things that you have to do to manage the company. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and in this instance, uh, maybe maybe you need to cool things down a little bit at times because there's so <laughs> much excitement or manage the expectations. How, how do you think yeah. about these uh, these two different uh um, set of circumstances? Well, the common thread between these two circumstances is the science is incredibly exciting. So it does not take much for me to get going on talking about the science because they do hold great promise. And in each case, 
hold the promise to solve problems you couldn't solve with other approaches. And, and ultimately, that's the starting point for any of this is what kinds of medicines can you make and defining a very careful path to get to those medicines. In the world of CRISPR, communication is something we think about every single day, partly because there's a lot of different really important audiences and stakeholders. First and foremost, the patients, of course, patients and their families, physicians who are treating those patients, regulators, and not just the FDA, but more broadly, given some of the social and public policy implications of this technology, there's broader communication that becomes important with legislators and folks in the administration, and not just in the US, but but more broadly than that as well. In addition, you're right, it, it, there's a lot of heat and light on this subject. And part of what we want to do is, yes, convey our excitement, but be very sober and realistic because at the other end of everything we say, there are patients who have great hopes for this technology. We're very sensitive to what they and their families hear so that we're being as responsible as we could possibly be in speaking to all these audiences, but knowing they're listening in particular all the time. Yeah, it, it seems like an unusual spot to be in. I, I think most biotech companies are in the more obscure spot, a little more like Avala, where not that many people yeah. know what you're doing, not that many people understand it. Um, and in the case of CRISPR, I mean, not a day goes by. I mean, it's in the news every single day. And um, and and this these are these are external forces that you know can actually have an effect on a, a company like Editas or or some of the others in your 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 small group of CRISPR companies like Intellia and, and CRISPR Therapeutics are a couple of others. I mean, I was just uh, on vacation last week and saw that there was a, a report out in scientific literature of uh, germline editing of human embryos. Um, and, and this is the kind of thing that gets people's imaginations going about, you know, the ethical issues, the um, the, the designer baby uh, fears, concerns that, that have been around for decades. Um, you know, and if, if people... If perceptions run wild, um, that that could you know, create some kind of backlash that makes it more difficult for, for companies like, like Editas well, or Intelio. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that we think it's so important to be very proactive in, in communication and engagement and to be very, to, to mean it and be you know, real with that is, is that it's not just about what we're trying to do as a company. You're, you're right. You're pointing to these broader um, questions of, of ethics and public policy, and everybody's got a stake in that. So part of how we can be constructive is, one, to be transparent about what we're doing. And there's there's a lot of ways we do that. As a public company, we, of course, are required to talk a lot about what we're doing, and we're very comfortable doing that. But we, you know, we publish scientifically, and so there's scientific engagement. But we also, we engage with policymakers, and then, you know, I think also try to be a responsible voice to the public at large. And not just us, but, but the other companies in the field, CRISPR and Intelia, as well, and the three of us, do, we talk to one another about these points, because we all we have a very you know, shared set of values around this, as well as uh, desire to be very thoughtful and responsible in this communication. It It is, you know, I think that we can't lose sight of the fact that it's also a fantastic opportunity to talk to the public about science and for us to then be able to understand what people's questions and concerns are, help all of us separate fact from fiction. But, you know, there, there's a range of views on these technologies, not just in the U.S., but internationally. And, yeah, everybody's got a stake in these sorts of ethical questions. No question, no question about that. 
Do you have a, a Google News alert to keep you apprised <laughs> of everything that, that may be incoming? I have many information sources. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I think that um, being in the field, you know, obviously we, we're, we're quite close to the scientific advancements. And so we often do hear about things earlier than they get published and, and such. Um, so we're, we're oftentimes by the time they are published, we, we already know the science. And then a lot of the, the amplification of that is just sort of retelling the story or the breakthrough. Um, so, so there are certainly, uh, there's certainly a lot to keep up with. It's a very fast moving field. Um, but I think what we try to also separate the, the signal from the noise, if you will, and really make sure we understand deeply those significant advances or significant issues, um, and then try not to get lost in, in the signal, uh, sorry, the noise of all of it. Yeah. Well, this is the public facing part of things, but Tell me about how you think about what's going on behind the scenes, how you take an exciting platform technology and build a real company um, around this uh, in terms how um, how do you um, think about the, the I guess the three legs of the stool that we talked about uh, the other day, the science, the business and the people that you want to put together here? Yes. Yes, and so let's let's tackle them in that order. So let's start with the science. You know, as you mentioned, when when this company was founded in late 2013, some of the core science was was fairly newly published. It hadn't even been translated into a lot of different laboratories, and and so it was a pretty exciting but pretty raw idea. What we did also have, though, was a landscape where progress in some other closely related scientific fields were very useful. So for example, gene therapy, a lot of progress in gene therapy delivery had been made over the last literally 20 years. And looking at that, you said, you know, some of those approaches might be useful in delivering gene editing medicines. So that's interesting. Also, a lot of progress in the science of sequencing and how do you do DNA sequencing and the speed and the accuracy and the cost of that and the improvements in, in that was an important underlying capability. So you looked at all that and you said, all right, what kinds of problems are we going to have to solve to translate this academic science? Number one, you have to make your edits to the DNA very efficiently. So how do we improve efficiency? Number two, we have to do it very specifically. And that actually raises two questions. One is, how do you make a very specific molecule? What, how do you optimize the molecule itself to make it very specific? But how do you know? Like, literally, how do you know if your molecule is specific? There's no off-the-shelf analytical technology for that question because people haven't been doing gene editing before. So there's also both bringing in and then creating new methods to assess or to analyze specificity. So that, you know, optimizing your molecule is one dimension of what you have to tackle scientifically. So that lays out a certain set of scientific questions and problems to solve. Second, how are you going to deliver it? How are you going to get it to those cells in the body that you need to treat, where you need to edit the genes of those cells for the disease you want to treat? So delivery is a second domain of, of technology development and, and questions to answer. And then how are you going to make sure you're getting the right kind of repair? There are 
6,000 different genetically driven diseases. And there's a range of kinds of DNA mistakes that can lead to those diseases. Different kinds of mistakes dif- need different kinds of repairs. Some are easier, some are harder. So you take all of those questions and it, it starts to say, all right, these are the technological problems we need to solve. And it, it starts to tell you what kinds of people you need to hire. You know, you need to hire people who understand how DNA is repaired, how the cell reacts to DNA. So DNA damage repair specialists, people who understand delivery, people who understand the chemistry of RNA and DNA. There's all of the nucleotide chemists that, that, that are important expertise to have. People who understand protein chemistry. How can you engineer the protein? So you start to understand the different kinds of expertise you need. Obviously, people who understand gene sequencing and things like that. But you need to intersect all of that with what kinds of actual programs do you want to work on? What diseases? What targets? And there's a, you know, there's, you do a big, long exercise. And that's, that's what the early folks in the company did of looking at all the different genetic diseases and talking to experts in, in genetic diseases and getting ideas. And, you know, there's lots of different criteria you're going to apply to think about what to work on first. But it boils down to a couple big categories. First of all, the medical need. You know, is, what is the nature of the disease? How serious is it? Are there other treatments that work? If so, then that's great. But you know, probably we should focus on ones where there aren't any good treatments yet. Number two, technically, can you figure out how to approach it given the type of the mutation? Do you, do you understand how to edit that mutation? And given the cells in the body you need to reach, do you think you can get there? Some cells are easier to get to than others. Right now, reaching cells in the eye or in the liver or in the blood or the bone marrow, those are more approachable. Cells, other tissues in the body, those, those are more difficult. So it doesn't mean impossible, but just some are easier, some are harder. So thinking about the technical tractability, can I get the right kind of edit accomplished? Can I get to the cells I need to get to? And, you know, then can I find the patients? You know, are, are they identifiable? Can I reach them in time, given the progress of their disease? So you look at these different factors, and there's no algorithm for it. I mean, these are all important factors, and ultimately it's a judgment with regard to what programs you work on. But through that kind of assessment, there generally are a few programs that emerge as ones that make sense as starting points. And so as an example, we're working on a disease called labor congenital amaurosis 10, or LCA10. And this is a, a disease where a mistake in one gene leads to blindness. And it's understood what the, m- the mistake is and what the downstream consequences are, and there's no treatment for this, for this particular disease. But we can reach the cells in the eye. The mutation was understood. There's a lot of reasons we said that's one we think we could begin to approach. Working on the technology through the lens of a specific program is incredibly helpful. I I always use the phrase internally, it's a forcing function, right? A forcing function is one that makes you solve for X. And when you're working on a specific disease, you have to solve for things like, how much do I have to deliver? How many cells? Yeah. This is a very important task of management, setting the priorities, deciding what you're going to focus on, especially with 
uh, an enabling technology like CRISPR, uh, which can do so many things um, yeah. because you are a company and you can't do everything. Under the sun, you you do have to decide, and and this, it's interesting to hear you talk about um, those selection criteria and how it helped you focus in on labor congenital amaurosa type ten. Well, that but if I may add one more layer onto it, because you're right, it is it is a question you have to pick and choose and focus, or you if you try to do everything, you'll fail at everything. It's just you really need to create points of focus. But one additional layer you try to think about with a broad platform like this is to say, how can, in addition to that first program, hopefully delivering an important medicine for those patients, the technical progress we make with that program, how can that also teach us things that we can leverage in other diseases? So for example, figuring out how to deliver to the eye, there are other eye diseases where Hopefully that will be useful. We won't, we won't be starting from square one again with the next eye disease we work on. Also, because that's our very first program, some of the most basic aspects like specificity. How do you analyze for specificity? Well, we, you know, we had to invent some technologies to do that, but those are now part of the whole platform. So, so that first program creates in its wake capabilities that you can apply to other programs and Part of what you want to do in these early programs that you select is ones where you can see how there are other programs that will benefit from the progress you make in the first one. You want to get some leverage there. Definitely. So you, I believe, announced that you were going to take a little more time in getting to the clinic. You're still preclinical. Yes. So this is something like another maybe six months, I think you told investors, um, that you were going to do, some, and I believe, non-human primate studies. Um, yes. Why, why, so, did you, uh, yeah. why did you do that? Well, so with this LEAD program, um, our initial goal had been to try to file an IND, which is the, the documents that you, you file with the FDA in order to be able to start testing in humans. We'd originally hoped to file that IND by the end of this year. We uh, a couple months ago, shifted that to the middle of next year. The, the program is still making excellent progress. Um, but one of the many challenges of a very new technology like this is it's not just about the biology. It's about all the aspects of developing a medicine. And you have to manufacture your product candidate at you know the highest quality level because you're going to be putting it into human beings. And so we we do know how to do that but it's it's complex and so we ran into a couple of issues there that caused a delay so we've solved those issues but unfortunately it did cause a timeline delay uh, compared to what we've been working towards so this is somewhat part and parcel in the nature of drug development uh, you know in this particular case the the issue wasn't because it was CRISPR specifically, it just related to one of the, the manufacturing inputs um, didn't achieve a quality measure. That does happen sometimes when you're in early drug development, whether it's gene editing or small molecules or, or antibodies. Um, so, you know, we, we don't like missing a goal for sure, but at the end of the day, it's really important to get it right. And uh, so we'll continue to advance the program. The data are still looking very good and very supportive of advancing to the clinic. Um, and we just need to keep going. Well, I, I think it's a fair point. I mean, people, um, 
sometimes in the stock market get um, disappointed, nervous when they see a, a milestone delay. Uh, but at the same time, when you're in a field like this, uh, a new a new modality here with CRISPR, uh, if you rush <laughs> to the clinic and uh, screw up in a pretty big way, uh, that uh, that would be a much bigger deal than, say, uh, a six-month delay uh, after having gotten all your ducks in a row and moving yeah. more methodically. There's always a balance because, of course, we have a huge sense of urgency for the patients we hope to help. And just because it's this field is so exciting, we want to move fast. And it absolutely has to be balanced with rigor and getting the science right. Um, I mentioned the non-human primate studies. You know, not every company does that. Um, or I know that they're, they can be expensive and, and difficult experiments to do. Uh, why did you um, decide to incorporate that into your uh, preclinical work? In our case, the one of the things about non-human primates is that the physical structure of their eye is pretty similar to a human eye. And there aren't many other preclinical species that that have that characteristic. So we can learn things and, and we do do work in other species preclinically, but we felt it was important to do some work in the non-human primate because that's going to give us the best understanding of what we think it will be like when we are advancing into the clinic. So it really was pharmacology, science. You know, this is, you, you pick the species you work in preclinically need to be driven by what's going to give you the best information to support your clinical development. And that was the case here. Well, this is one of the vexing challenges of the industry is finding, you know, more predictive models. Um, if we have more predictive models, yeah. uh, we can reduce that failure rate and make, make drug development <laughs> a lot more efficient. Uh, we're not there yet all the way, but um, working on it. Uh, so, um, you know, you're still in very early days there at Editas. Uh it, you know, I mean, it's hard to believe that you know, the first CRISPR paper was only you know, five years ago. Um, and um, you, you still have so long to go. You know this um, in, yeah. in clinical development. Do, and, and there's so much speed and excitement and urgency around it. Do, do you actually need to find yourself like um, uh, pacing yourself or slowing yourself down or, or encouraging your team to, uh, to do that as well? So I know you run marathons, so you can appreciate the concept of pacing. <laughs> and I've, I've run a couple marathons. I run them much more slowly than you do. But yes, pacing absolutely matters. And, and there, there are times when, you know, there's, there's tremendous momentum and, and that's great. But what really matters is getting across the finish line. And so, you know, having some sense of, what's too fast and what's too slow. It's, it's what we spoke about a moment ago, that balance of the sense of urgency with getting it right. I don't know that there's a formula to that, but I think part of how you figure that out, one is just building the team overall with people who have experience and you know, who've been around the block. They've seen the movie before. You know, on our executive team, we have people who've put multiple drugs into the clinic and, you know, our chief medical officers brought multiple programs from you know, IND all the way to approval. So they, they kind of know what it looks like. 
similarly on our board of directors, which, you know, I think for some folks, what does the board do? It feels a little bit like a black box. Well, the board's an incredibly important resource is how I look at them first and foremost for myself as well as for the company broadly. Not only in terms of, you know, obviously a sounding board for the things we're working on, but for perspective and for the experiences that they bring to the table. So folks like, for example, Akshay Vaishnav is on our board of directors and he's the chief medical officer at Al Nilam. You know, he's been part of developing that whole platform, seeing multiple new molecules go into the clinic. So a very, very helpful experience that's analogous to what we're facing here at Editas. Um, at Al Nilam, they're developing RNAi so it's a different kind of modality. But when they started as a company, it was brand new. And what diseases to work on and how do you deliver it and all the kinds of questions that we wrestle with here, he's wrestled with there. So part of how you get the pacing right is you bring people into the company in these different roles who know what it's going to take so you can get, you can figure out when to push, push, push and when, when to maybe step back a little bit and think harder. You must uh, look at um, things like the El Nilam experience, and you recognize that uh, they went through their their long lean years, right? When um, people sort of lost faith for a while that RNAi wasn't going to um, solve all these diseases right away, or it wasn't right around the corner. Uh, delivery was harder than people thought. Uh, do you um, do you try to brace yourself for kind of that inevitable? Um, let down, at least in some people's minds? There's a reason I use the marathon analogy. I mean, it's like, you know, mile 10, mile 15, all these miles are long miles at some point. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I think Al Nilam is a really great analogy. It, it turns out uh, John Marignori, who's the CEO there, he actually hired me at Biogen over 20 years ago. So I, I've known him through that, that whole journey he's been on. And, yeah, you, you, you have to be prepared for those moments because it's not just that it's new technology, it's it's drug development. It's hard. You know, there there will almost certainly be setbacks and you have to look at those as problems that need solutions and figure out how to solve them and keep going. What are what's one of those um challenges in front of you that may not be very widely appreciated? Um is is dosing and, and delivery really one of them? Yeah, in fact, it's funny because I was, I was, I was going to start talking about pharmacokinetics. Um, but the, the, the question of delivery, I think we've all known from the beginning of this field was going to be one of the big challenges for the field because there are so many di- different tissues in the body you, you might want to address because there's so many different diseases and different tissues are probably going to require different solutions. There'll be some where you get leverage from, from, from one solution to another, but, but it's not going to be a, I don't think it's going to be a single delivery solution. So, so that it is a complicated aspect of what we're doing, but you know, you mentioned the question of dosing and you know, the concept of dose pretty straightforward, right? How much do you give? What's the right amount? And you can ask that concept with aspirin. We all know dose of aspirin or dose of, of any kind of medication we take, but here we actually have to sort of invent a new language around dosing because it's not about, you know, X number of milligrams or something like that. It's really a question of how many cells do you need to edit to get benefit for that patient? 
And then also what happens to those cells? If you're editing something like a hematopoietic stem cell, so this is the cells in your bone marrow that make your blood system and they you know, keep making new blood cells all the time. If you edit those cells, and you might want to do that, for example, if you wanted to try to treat sickle cell disease, those cells will keep making new blood cells. So if you edit the stem cells, the, the hematopoietic stem cells, that population will continue to make more and more edited cells. So if you're editing a stem population, it's quite a different pharmacokinetic equation, if you will, than if you were editing, for example, the cells in the eye, the ones that we're working on in our LCA10 program, there you're editing cells called photoreceptors. And those cells don't divide. They're, they're just there in your retina. And so once you've edited them, you're done. And, and they, don't, they don't turn over, they don't uh, propagate, they, don't, uh, they, they just are what are called terminally differentiated cells. So in these two examples, uh, hematopoietic stem cells or photoreceptors, your whole question of how much is enough has a different set of parameters. And so figuring out not only you know, what is the right framework to talk about this, but then defining specifically for this disease What's the number? How many cells do I have to edit? How much, how much of my gene editing machinery do I need to deliver to get that many cells edited? Not only is it how, a question of how much, but how often. Do you need to do repeat dosing or not? And that's going to be very dependent on the disease. Um, in, once you've edited a particular cell, that cell is not going to revert and become unedited. So once you edit a cell, it'll stay edited. So if it's a stem cell that makes makes more cells, all of those progeny cells will be edited as well. If it's if, if in a single dose you can edit enough cells that that gives the, the needed therapeutic benefit, then yeah, maybe once is enough. But if you weren't efficient enough in your first delivery, or if you thought, you know, you gave, you got some benefit for the patient in your first delivery, but if you could edit more cells, you might be able to, to do better, then you might want to have more than one administration. So this, this does get back to that question of dose really, and to say, all right, how efficient is my editing in a single administration? Can I get the maximum efficiency in that one administration? Or if there's some technical reason I, I can't do that, then would a second administration be able to get further editing and, and improve what the, the clinical benefit is for the patient? Are there other companies besides Alnylam that you've looked at as sort of case studies for where you want to go with this long term? Well, if you think about you know, some of the, the great companies of our industry that really pioneered broad new science, there are always lessons you can learn. You know, the, the context is always unique, but we can look at Genentech and, and Amgen and, and Biogen and Genetics Institute, you know, the, the earliest companies in, or CETUS for that matter, the earliest companies in modern day biotechnology. I think there's lessons from all of those. What programs do you work on is one of the top ones. How do you create enough um, capital foundations so that you can weather the storm. I mean, these, these are lessons that I'm sure Al Nylum learned from those earlier companies as well. And we, we see them again with Al Nylum, but some of these are, 
are quintessential for the industry. I think, though, I, I in addition to a company like Al Nylum, I, I think mm-hmm. it's very interesting to look mm-hmm. at the antibody companies, right? So you think about you had the earliest antibody uh, approved as a drug, OKT3, was a murine antibody, a mouse antibody. And then it was years before the next antibody was approved because technically a mouse antibody is not a good idea as a human drug. And there was a lot of technology development that had to happen to get to what ultimately was the promise of antibodies. And you had protein design labs and and uh, created the um, CDR grafting technology, which was a step that really allowed you to, to finally make lots of antibody products. And then you had other companies like um, Metarex and, and Abgenics that had even better technologies. So you could see that the... There was a long effort to humanize um, the mouse, uh, to, to reduce the mouse DNA and to make these antibodies less uh, likely to provoke an immune response. Yes. And similarly, less kind of visible, but the other improvement in technology that was happening at the same time was manufacturing yield and capacity and stability and, and a lot of aspects about the physical product that also was necessary to really start to address these larger patient populations. So you had this multi-year period before you kind of, the field broke open and there were a very small number of companies that were at the crux of really solving those problems. And then, then you had a lot of other companies decide that they were ready to be part of that field. So I think one of the questions I look at in the antibody field as an interesting lesson is what is that set of technical capabilities that, and it's never just one problem you got to solve, it's usually a few that really allow the full vision to be realized. And with antibodies, it was humanization and it was manufacturing and stability a little bit. So, you know, I think that's one where I don't think we can yet see exactly what the answer is for gene editing and we have our our views and our thoughts. But I think there's some really interesting lessons from the world of antibodies. What about um, hiring? different kinds of people at different kinds of stages of the company. Um, I, I, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, that, that you're, you look first at the scientific problems that you're trying to solve and, and use that as your guide. Um, but uh, how else do you um, sort through the resumes and determine who to hire? You know, hiring is probably the number one thing that I think about, hiring as well as team and organizational development. Um, it's a, it's just never easy because given the fact that yeah, we're in a new field and so every single week there is something that comes up in some aspect of the company where the answer is, well, not only have we never done that before, nobody's done that before. So that in and of itself tells you you need people who can think creatively, who are problem solvers, who figure out how to adapt ideas from other areas and, and solve problems in this area. Um, people need a real resilience for that because there, there are some weeks where it's like, hey, could we have a week where just nothing dramatically new happens and it just we, we just make progress, you know? Um, we do not have any boring weeks here, that's for sure. But, but I do think it, you know, you really do need people who are comfortable in a, what can sometimes be an uncomfortable landscape because it, 
there's there's just always something new that has to be sorted out. You also need people who are comfortable where the organization is not yet fully formed. You know, we're, we're a little over 100 people now, and we were half this size a year ago, and a year before that, we were half that size. And that pace of growth means that we need to change as an organization as quickly as the, the science changes. And that, you know, that requires a certain patience, but also people who are willing to identify what we need to do differently. Hey, you know, we used to do this informally. We need a little bit more of a process now. And sometimes process is your friend, you know? And, and so I think people who have, who are sensitive to figuring out what the organization needs, not just what the science needs, but what the organization needs, because that's a constantly moving target as well. On that front, I mean, there is, you know, obviously tons of, you know, literature and experts about rapidly growing organizations. And that stuff is actually helpful. You know, that's an area where we don't have to reinvent the wheel as much as we have to reinvent the wheel on the, the scientific side. So I think part of it is also getting good help in terms of how do you do the organizational development. Um, and then finally, just hiring. You're always, always talking to people to get ideas for the, the people that might help contribute to the organization, uh, both in terms of employees, uh, but also developing the board of directors, because that's that's another dimension of developing the organization. Well, some of this is a natural evolution, right? As your company evolves, you know, so at some point next year, you'll be in the clinic and you'll have more requirements for, say, regulatory people than than you have now. Um, and th- these things will just clinical development, et cetera. This, they, they will layer upon each other. Um, and and uh the whole thing expands. But I, I guess you mentioned process. That's often kind of a dirty word to a lot of people in the industry. Uh, you know, when you're trying to do something as, uh, you know, adaptable and at, at an adaptable stage, um, you don't want to become a, a prisoner of the process. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, at this stage, 100 people, it's it's not um, it's not that much of a, of a danger um, that, that everybody well, will be in their little silos. No, but I think, so two things though. One is that, you know, process can be empowering, right? If everybody knows how it works, then you don't have to have a meeting all the time to figure out how it works. People are are empowered. So I think figuring out what processes are actually empowering rather than bureaucratic is, is part of the key. But but the other thing, so yeah, you're right. Some of it is naturally as the company scales, will need more capacity in certain roles. But one of the things in these early years of a company that I think is is critical is in any given function, the first person you hire into that role has a profound impact on that dimension of the company writ large. It lasts. Like that individual's impact is, you know, it's, it's the first regulatory person in the company, the first clinical person in the company, the first communications person in the company. These individuals really set a tone that, that becomes part of the DNA of the organization. And so I think that, sure, there's a natural scaling, but I do think there's a, you need to pay particular attention when you're hiring the first person in a particular function, whatever level that is, it, it really matters. That's a really interesting insight. Uh, and I think that expresses uh, some humility on your own part, uh, whereas you know, as a CEO, <laughs> it's not all about you. <laughs> <laughs> if we wanted to spend time on how much I don't know, you'd need a longer podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but obviously, uh, setting a tone, a culture starts at the top. It's very important. 
Um, but, um, but that's not the end of the story. What you're saying is that these, yeah, these people in, in their own domains, um, they, they leave, um, very important fingerprints. Well, and, and you need them to, right? Because again, we said earlier that every week we face some challenge that's like brand new and pretty big and has a lot of impact and, if for sure this you could never do this if stuff had to go through me you need people in each role in the company who are far better at what they do than i would ever be if i tried right i mean that's the whole point right this is a this is a team sport this is not a, making making new medicines is not an individual sport it's the ultimate team sport and and it, it extends to every single role in the company do you uh do you think the timelines um for what you're trying to do at editas are um pretty predictable in terms of the long term, you know, like if you look at something like El Nylum or Genentech, you know, these things took a long time. Or, or do you do you think we're entering a different phase when uh, maybe these timelines will be compressed and accelerated? Maybe we'll have a drug for Lieber in four or five years. Well, there's there's always some aspect of it that's that's a little bit disease specific, right? That the time it takes to study a disease like Alzheimer's, given the the nature of that disease progression, is always going to be different than for something where it's it's a, a rapidly progressing disease. So there's some inherent difference in timelines based on that. But but I think just stepping back and, and looking at you know across the landscape of the last forty years of biotech, what is it really? take to build a sustainable company, it is a long endeavor, well over a 10-year endeavor, no question about that. But, you know, is it is it 20 years? Is, is it, you know, we, we still see these, we still know the companies that have kind of gone the whole journey and obviously continue to be vibrant companies. Look at a, a Gilead or a Biogen or, I mean, Genentech is part of Roche now, but was independent for many, many years. Amgen, obviously, is a huge company. There's Regeneron. We could, we could go on and on with different examples, some of the newer ones, Elnylam, but more recently, look at Agios. They've just had their first product approval, and you know that was fairly rapid for a company that was, I think they're seven or eight years old. So so it can be, it can be rapid in certain instances, but I think that the way I'd always look at it is, plan for plan for winter maybe it'll be a short winter but but plan for a long winter and be ready for it to be quicker i mean you always want it to be quicker if you possibly could but you you always have to be prepared for it to be tough and long and then work to find ways to make it make it quicker well and even in the case of um something like an agios you know they've now got one drug on the market and that's great um but for to, to be, you know, a truly enduring drug development enterprise, you, you need some diversification like uh, some of those organizations you mentioned. And that's going to take a few more years. It, yes. it, it just does. But it's funny. Yeah, I remember when Amgen was launching their third product. It's going back a few years now. Their first two products were huge blockbuster products. And their third product was important medically, but just wasn't as big. And they got beaten up because their third product wasn't as big. And I remember thinking, come on, that's their third product. That should be fantastic. So, you know, the, the, I think it's just, it's one of those things that sticks in my mind as, you know, there, there's, there's always a, another aspect of building a company and making drugs, no matter how big or small you are, how young or old you are as a company, 
making drugs is really, really hard. Well, the market uh, can be a very unforgiving place. Uh, it's necessary. They, the investors have to uh, see that uh, that blue sky, that opportunity, uh, and uh, it, you know, folks like yourself need to uh, keep them informed and uh, you know on an even keel as best you can, I guess, <laughs> uh, for to, to buckle up for the the bumpy ride. Well, I think part of what the way we approach that is to to try to be really rigorous and clear and transparent in our communications. I mean, th- we we speak to investors all the time. They're a really important stakeholder for us. We're able to build this company because they believe in us and and want to be part of that journey. Um, and and I think that you know we want to be clear with them about the commitment that we have and the commitment we think it takes to, to really do this. And, you know, I think there are absolutely investors who understand that there's, you know, obviously many different kinds of investors with different kinds of investment goals. And there are ones who, who really understand the long-term potential. And, you know, we're, we're privileged to have a lot of them as investors in this company and we need to earn their capital just as we need to, earn the trust of the public in what we're doing and everything else. It's, it is an important part of building a company like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, this is part of what separates the, the really best companies from the mediocre ones is that ability to communicate in a, in a fair, responsible, even handed, clear way. Um, you know, I, I think of back to at the beginning of the show, we talked about a, a six month delay on your timelines and or, or um, you know, there was a paper recently by some scientists that talked about off target effects of, of CRISPR, lack of specificity in some instances. And, and that causes some people to get jittery and nervous and yeah. run for the hills. But that's not really news to the people who um, have been paying attention for some time. And it well, shouldn't be a, a 10 alarm fire, you know. It's and if you've done your job as a company, um, you know there might be a little chop in the sea for a while, but you know, things will balance out over over things like that. Well, and also I think how do you look at those as opportunities? So, for example, the the, the paper, the short paper that was published in May, uh, that that asked questions about specificity, it did definitely cause chop in the marketplace, and we basically said, all right, well we need to respond to it scientifically. We'll do that, but. What a fantastic opportunity to talk to people about specificity because we think it's hugely important and it's always been part of our platform. And, you know, a lot of times people don't want to hear about it because they think it's this little bit arcane technical detail. And we're like, we love talking about specificity. We think it's, it's hugely important. We have a lot of, uh, you know, we've got a lot of technology around that. You know, we, we can address this question very robustly. So in a weird way, you know, you never like to see your stock price get thrown around for essentially arbitrary reasons. But on the other hand, there were a lot of conversations we had with investors around that that paper because all of a sudden they were really interested in specificity. And we said, fantastic, let's talk about it. So I, I do think that, that, that you have to look at it that way because, I, I, you know, the, we understand people having anxiety about is this an issue or not. Great. Let's talk about it. Yeah, and and this is the kind of anxiety that you know it gives people heartburn in the short term, but um, you know if you could fast forward oh a year or so and you've got your first batch of data from Liebers, uh, and it's good, 
um, that's the sort of thing like that paper would will be long forgotten, (laughs) (laughs) less than a footnote in the history of Editas if if you deliver on your goals. Absolutely. But I I think, you know, we, we always have to answer with data. Right, whether it's a question somebody else raises that it, it is a real substantive question, or it's it's maybe people think it's related, but it's not, or whatever it is, our strongest answer always has to be with data. And and I think you're right that you know, for, as this technology goes through all of its terrible twos and its adolescence and all of that, as we work out how to really make medicines based on CRISPR. Ultimately, what lasts is is the medicines, and and I think that the the Sturm und Drang of, of how you get there, which is inevitable for a new science like this, its lasting legacy is medicines. Katrine Bosley, thanks very much for joining me on this episode of the Long Run. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Music for the show comes from D.A. Wallach. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Todd Bennings created the logo. Next on The Long Run, I'll be talking with George Yankopoulos, the president and CEO at Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Regeneron, as many listeners of this show know, has been one of biotech's big successes of the past decade. It is the third best performing stock in the S&P 500 over the past decade. Yankopoulos and chairman and CEO Len Schleifer have been there since the obscure early days and have seen it all. They have strong opinions about the kind of culture they wanted to create at their company, on the right way to price their drugs, and how they want their company to continue to remain creative, or at least avoid getting stale. Don't miss this upcoming episode of The Long Run.